You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be discussing On the Right Track, released March 6, 1981. It was written by Avery Buddy, Richard Moses, Lester Pine, and Tina Pine, directed by Lee Phillips, and released by 20th Century Fox. The working title was A Guy Could Get Killed Out There. The film's budget was $3 million, but it managed to take in 5.9 in its short theatrical run. Gary Coleman was nominated for a Worst Actor Razzie for his performance in the Aww. film. What? Totally not fair. Yeah. That is terrible. Fuck the Razzies. I've said it before, I'll say it again. We open on a wrecking ball destroying an abandoned building, honking traffic, and a man mugging an old woman, but then the old woman defends herself by throwing the man over her shoulder and beating the crap out of him. We tilt down on the exterior of Union Station in Chicago. Titles flash across the screen in red and blue, and then turn white and flash away again. I thought we would involve politics more in the film because of that, but yeah. we don't really. Well, and uh, we'll get to it when we do the ending credits. The ending credits have this really weird optical effect. Yeah, it's it's very strange. I, so much of this feels TV movie, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and none of these writers have worked on anything other than television uh, prior to this. And yeah, so it just seems like it was kind of coming from an outsider perspective of what a movie's supposed to look like, I think. <laughs> A woman with a big suitcase rushes out of her taxi and into the station. She struggles to locate an available storage locker for her belongings, but when she eventually opens one, we see Gary Coleman sleeping inside, and his arm falls out of the opening door. The woman screams in terror and runs away. He's wearing some kind of hairy monster glove on the dangling hand, and then he tosses it back into the locker as he climbs out to start his day. He hangs a not-in-service sign on his home and takes his shine box for a walk. So this bothers me because, like... Wouldn't you have that sign on it all day? Well, yeah, A, you would have it on it all day, and B, he, throughout the movie, has all the keys for these three lockers Mm -hmm. and talks about paying for them. So How did she open it in the first place? Yeah, the point is that he doesn't need to say that it's out of order because he's literally paying the the coins to have the storage locker to to himself as a house. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if it's the other way around in that... He has to pay to keep them locked while he's away, and at night he has to keep them open so he can get out because he can't get he can't unlock ah, it from the inside. That's probably that true. makes sense. I'm thinking too much about this, <laughs> but still, <laughs> for you, when I move into the lockers, <laughs> if he's if he's paying to keep them locked during the day, though, he shouldn't need to hang a sign, right. regardless. Yeah. yeah, he says hello to all of the station employees who all know his name, Lester. He knows all the buskers on his way to Shakey's where his friend Sam runs the pizza shop, and he connects with his friend Vito. Lester is trying to organize a whole shoeshine company of kids, and Vito tells him he's got 20 kids lined up for Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Lester prepares to ask Sam for free pizza, but instead enters into a bet with him. If Lester can answer his inane sports trivia, he gets the pizza free. In 1908, who was a runner from South Africa who ran against Jack Donaldson for $50,000 and lost? Reggie Walker. Lester, 
pretty soon when I have to start taking you as a business loss. However, according to Making the Transition, Empire Amateurism and Reggie Walker, the Little Natalian Sprinter, by Deborah Marie Pitchford at Manchester Metropolitan University, Reggie Walker and Jack Donaldson actually faced off in 1910, not 1908, a stat confirmed by contemporary articles in the Rand Daily Mail and the Rhodesia Herald. You really looked all this up. I was also unable to corroborate the $50,000 purse. Walker did once offer 500 to any challenger years later, but 50000 seems completely fabricated since, after inflation and exchanging currencies, 50,000 pounds is the equivalent of $8.3 million today. <laughs> As Sam retreats to start making Lester's pizza, Lester tries to negotiate a deal for eight pizzas a day to feed his future employees with. We get a taste of Lester's business savvy, and it's clear that this kid is smart, and he's going to make things work despite the crappy hand that life has dealt him. We also see that Lester is tight with his money when he buys a Sports Illustrated from a magazine stand, but asks for a used copy to bring the price down. The salesperson is not interested in haggling and wrinkles a new copy to render it used before handing it over. Is that a thing? Like, I don't think selling so. used magazines? Um, yeah, I imagine it, it at a train station, there's probably some kind of turnover for magazines. Maybe. Hmm. Like, you, you pick up one at one station, and then when, by the time you get, you go back, you give it to another station, and they, maybe they give you, like, a rebate. Yeah, maybe. On your next magazine. Just have to look at the number on the bottom for mm -hmm. the CRV value. Lester meets with another friend, Robert, played by Bill Russell, working in a health club where he's offered a free hot shower. Lester takes him up on the offer, and suddenly an unaccompanied homeless miner is wandering around this health club in just a towel. Robert asks Lester how his business permit is coming along, and he says it's fine. Lester asks how Robert's son, Mark, is doing, and if he might have any interest in working with Lester on this new venture. Robert seems doubtful. He's worried that his son's going to end up in jail if he doesn't turn his life around soon. Again, Lester displays an empathy and parental instinct far beyond his years. It's hard raising a son these days, huh? The film doesn't shy away from exposing Lester to adult conversations. Lester sits down with a customer and asks what he's working on. Artificial insemination. Uh, you know what that is? Sure! That's sex without any fun. <laughs> Yeah, ha ha ha. But isn't it a little bizarre that this guy would bring up artificial insemination with a 10-year-old boy at the station? And even weirder that someone who works in that field wouldn't have heard the joke that it's like sex without the fun. Like that's the first joke you would make in the office. <laughs> Upstairs at the station, a portly man supervises a row of adult shoe shiners and notices Lester siphoning customers below. He chases Lester around the station accusing him of stealing his business, but he can't keep up. Later, Lester is polishing the shoes of another customer who sneezes on him multiple times while reading about the day's horse races. This is really disturbing. Yeah. Like, turn your head away from the person. Like, sneeze into your elbow, buddy. Yeah, and <laughs> Lester's not doing enough to avoid it either. He's just yeah. like, he's just like, oh, oh. Every time he gets hit with boogers, it's like, take a few steps back. <laughs> that sweet, sweet spray. Ugh. The horses' names appear highlighted in the paper from Lester's perspective. Dancing Doll, Fish Dream, Latest Song. Lester finds his friend Mary, played by Maureen Stapleton, digging through a trash can for food and tries to offer her cash to get something better, but she urges him to put his money away. So many times I told you this place is crawling with weird old criminals. What are you worried for? You ain't got nothing to steal. I could get raped. See you later, Mary. 
We cut to an arcade in the station where Jill Klein, played by Lisa Eilbacher, is repairing an open pinball machine and singing along to a small stereo. Do you recall the last time we saw someone repairing a pinball machine? Was it Pinball Summer? No, <laughs> close. Pickup Summer. Same difference. Yeah, same thing. But, okay, so in this moment, and I rewound it a couple times, and I couldn't figure it out. Is she supposed to be singing or yes. is she lip syncing? I think she's singing along to the radio. Okay. Yeah. Because at first I thought it was I thought it was a joke because it so clearly looks like she's lip syncing to yeah. something that's being played back. And then she rewinds the tape and it does it again and I'm like, Oh, okay, so it is a joke. She's lip syncing, right? And then I'm like, Oh wait, no, she's trying to be a singer, so she probably I think was that's singing. that was her audition song and she's practicing mm-hmm. it. I get that now, but at this right. point in the movie I was like, Oh, that's not a joke. Yeah. Jill sees Lester enter the arcade and drags him to a test-your-knowledge machine in the back. Lester answers a question correctly, but weasels out of the test by asking about an audition Jill seems to be dreading. He tells her that he's going to manage her singing career. Do you recall the last time someone with magical powers offered to manage someone's singing career? Was it the devil and Max Devlin? It was. Oh, that's probably true. (laughs) What were you guys? I was like, well, I was going back to the apple. (laughs) Oh, okay. That, That works, too. She asks if he's still playing the horses, and he admits that he sees the winning triples occasionally, but promises not to bet on them. As he walks out of the arcade, the fat cigar-chomping shoeshine magnate grabs Lester's shine box away from him, but Jill steals it back. The man tries to sick the station police on the kid, but they don't care, so he puts in a call to report Lester to the juvenile authority. Agent Frank Biscardi, played by Michael Lembeck, doesn't sound too excited by what his job entails today. If I get lucky today, I'll call her a 10-year-old kid for shining shoes without a license. God, this job stinks. Back at Sam's, Jill has bought Lester more pizza and is trying to convince him to get out of this station and live in the real world. She tells him he'll be married one day, and Lester imagines it happening at his current age. We see a dream sequence wedding, and it ends with him and his child bride being closed into a sparkling white storage locker. There's a weird moment here where she invites Lester to live with her. Oh, hey, it'd be nice, but uh, I can't just do that. I mean, I'd have to go up there every day, and I can't do that. Look, I know what goes on up there is an offense to God. And I don't like it either. An offense to God? Mm-hmm. What is she talking about? Is she just talking about the general sins of the Chicago area? Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> have you been to Chicago? <laughs> is there more sin happening outside of the station than inside the station? If there is, why should he leave? She pushes him to explain why he doesn't like it outside the station, and he basically just says people call him names out there. Like, he doesn't really give a good reason. Yeah. I don't feel like throughout the entire film I understand his reasoning for not going up there. Yeah. Lester shares with her all of his sci-fi nonsense plans to solve the city's problems from here inside the station. He says he's going to burn garbage with lasers and destroy pollution with loud noises. Jill shares a poem with him. I don't know if I'll remember it all, but, but it goes something like this. Um, oh God, grant us a vision of our city, as fair as she might be. A city of plenty where vice and poverty shall not fester, where success shall be founded on service, where honor shall be awarded to nobleness alone, and where order shall not be resting on force on the love of all for the city. Hmm. Okay. Lester either memorizes the poem as she recites it, or only pretends to have just heard it the first time here. 
The shoeshine man walks Frank Biscardi through the station, pretending to worry that Lester will suffocate in his locker when Frank notices Jill finishing her meal at Sam's. Frank is infatuated and can't hear the shoeshine man's blathering anymore. Jill notices him too, and the shoeshine man says she's a friend of the kids and can point the way. Frank asks her where they can find Lester, and she refuses to rat on him. A fink cannot be buried in hallowed ground. I looked this up, and it's true. <laughs> you rat on people, you go to hell. Frank points out that Lester is an unaccompanied 10-year-old boy, and she says, His soul could be 2,000 years old. Frank starts condescending and flirting at the same time, and Jill completely falls for it. Yeah. I, I, w- <laughs> I, I hate, hate how simple this character is yeah that yeah. jill just falls for frank's bs every single time yeah. he's not even trying either i wish i knew what the hell you were talking about but it sounds so pretty <laughs> who cares he invites her to the ice capades <laughs> but she has an audition the shoeshine man points out lester and a chase ensues they stupidly chase the kid along a set of railroad tracks just as a train is arriving eventually lester surrenders but jill offers frank a date in exchange for letting the kid go the shoeshine guy accuses her of prostituting herself. You think this officer is going to not do his duty for sex? Lester coughs up the winning triple in the upcoming races as an added incentive. It seems like Frank passes on both offers, but as soon as he gets Lester out of the station, a maniac with a gun starts shooting into a crowd of people across the street, and he has to shield Jill and Lester from the chaos. So Lester is 100% correct in not wanting yeah. to go up to the street. Right, but... It's like, does this happen every time he gets to the top of the steps? Because we've been outside this building already once today, and it wasn't crazy like this. Well, I'm wondering if this is the curse of Lester's power. Oh, okay. Is like that that he's only so keep- Pedro Pascal is making random shootings happen around him in exchange yeah, ex- for getting the triple. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he drives Lester and Jill to the 14th Street shelter, and a pack of kids are cleaning litter off the steps outside. An intimidating score scares Lester away from the building, but they drag him inside. <laughs> Did you say an intimidating score? Yeah, like the music. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, he's not hearing the score of the movie. You don't know what his powers are. <laughs> you don't know the limitations of his powers. Yeah, he does occasionally address the camera in a look. He yeah. the fourth wall a couple of times. For some reason, after they drop him off, Frank still thinks he's entitled to a date with Jill. She tells him that she can't be involved with a man who arrests children, and then he blames God for his profession. Look, whatever I am, God made me. Now, you gonna argue with God? Huh? Nope, I guess I have to date you now. Yep. That's how easy it is to convince me of literally anything. Apparently, God made Frank and Frank Don't Hurt was a convincing argument because she turns on a dime and agrees to lunch fade to a cafe where she's telling him about the origins of her singing career and he asks if he can drive her to the audition while they talk a caricaturist is drawing them at their table but jill gets up to leave before he can finish her side of the table (laughs) frank tries to follow her until their waitress hands him a bill at the door we cut to lester climbing down a blanket rope to escape the shelter i guess you could say he's a little con descending if he were a con which i don't think he is nothing nope okay <laughs> i think jesse was getting a little tired of the score here you hear me from the other room yeah. singing along <laughs> it sounds like something you'd play over a montage of something mutating <laughs> uh 
uh, it's weird because uh, the the composer is the same guy who did uh, War Games. Yeah. And I was like, oh man, I, I definitely hear War Games in some of this That's music. Funny. But it makes sense in war games because it deals with computers. Yeah, <laughs> so it makes like more having, sense than that. Computers are allowed to make that noise. <laughs> but small children in orphanages are not. <laughs> no. In his office, Frank tells a coworker about the woman who enchanted him today. He mentions Lester's horse picks, and the guy points out that Lester nailed the triple for today. Rather than write it off as a fluke, Frank assumes Lester is magic. <laughs> and turns around immediately to retrieve him from the shelter. We cut to Jill's audition at Billy's downstairs bar, and Frank takes a bar stool in the audience. She's a great singer, but he's the only one clapping at the end of her song. Well, it's an audition. I yeah, mean, but still, just to be polite, there's other customers in this place, and no- nobody claps. She gives him a quick kiss in the moment of exhilaration, and he tells her that he's changed his mind about sheltering Lester, and the weird score kicks up again as they find out that Lester has escaped the place. Lester runs up to the doors of the station, Overhears strangers discussing the dead kid they found in a locker, allegedly shot six times. <laughs> Apparently, they've conflated the stories of the outdoor shooter and the confused woman who found Lester this morning. The woman enters the station now, leading a pack of cops to the locker, where she thought she found a dead boy this morning. So, so this is all happening in the span of a couple of hours, then. Right. Because, it's the same day, for sure. Yeah, the, this woman didn't come back a couple of days later, or even like six or seven hours later she she right. left immediately to go fetch the police yes would you wait several hours to go get the police if you found a dead child <laughs> well, no i know he's I, just I, saying the implication of how much story has passed no, no, no. Yeah. i know what you're saying i'm just it just came off as though yeah that's true that's true i, I, I would wait much longer before reporting a dead she didn't even give him time to rot in there <laughs> well i i guess what i what the the tone the tone i was setting was in the terms of a movie that she would have already tried to tell the police but no one would have either no one would have paid attention to her or someone would have have just written it off yeah and and this 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 plot point would be done her her running away screaming is the end of that plot point that that character never to return again yeah the fact that she returns at all is, is what I find bizarre. yes well this movie happens in real time <laughs> <laughs> look i am not some kind of a nut i never said you were man there is a little black kid curled up inside of one of these lockers maybe he wasn't completely dead <laughs> Like, he was just bleeding a lot. Lester makes a move for shakies when a pair of cops notice him, and he freezes in place. He takes advantage of a passing pastry cart and stows away inside, and the cops lose track of him for a moment. But they find him very quickly inside. Yeah, and also that there was only a single pastry in the pastry (laughs) Left. (laughs) I think he ate a bunch of them. (laughs) And the shelving that they were contained <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, he ate everything. They would, otherwise, you could only maybe have like six or seven of those cream puffs yeah. in there. But his face is completely covered in powder. I think he ate at least 12 of these. <laughs> but he's finishing the last one when they open it up. And he tries to convince them that the kid that they're looking for is, in fact, dead. Now, you guys looking for a dead kid. You're talking to a live kid. You can see I ain't dead. So the kid you're looking for is somewhere in a locker. <laughs> Jill and Frank arrive just in the nick of time to take custody of the kid. They inform Lester that he can stay down here, that he doesn't have to leave, and that the two of them are going to have dinner tonight. It's crazy that the plan wasn't already, let's keep this golden goose of a homeless kid safe at your apartment. But they jumped right to, fine, be homeless, and we'll have a vague idea where to find you (laughs) when we need to make a lot of money. And then they go home to eat. Over dinner, Frank mentions Lester's race picks, and Jill informs him that Lester always picks the triple, but she doesn't gamble. 
They kiss for a bit, and then Jill steps away, saying something's burning, but she goes past the stove into the bedroom, and Frank takes a second to catch on. I think she's inviting him to the bedroom for something exciting that's not cooking. In the station, Lester meets up with Mary, the bag lady, who informs him that she won the triple with his horses today. She's disappointed to be rich now because she's worried about protecting her cash. You ruined my life. I'm rich. Mary, you shouldn't bet if you can't afford to win. Mary. <laughs> I really like that line. I also like the way he's like, Mary. <laughs> Mary. <laughs> like he does this like silly voice for it. I guarantee that that was like an outtake yeah it seemed kept it in it seemed improvised and i guarantee you that maureen stapleton would have had a hard time not laughing at that the writing's actually pretty smart throughout and gary coleman isn't just reciting these lines they're capably delivered it's clear that he's in on the jokes like he knows what he's talking about back in the kitchen frank asks if jill thinks lester would do better living with him and she's over the moon excited about it he's quick to point out that it would be an expensive endeavor and wastes no time revealing the underlying plan they're going to get the next triple from Lester and use the winnings to solve Lester's situation. But it's like, how much money exactly do you need? Like, and what are you using it on? What mm -hmm. are you paying for? What are, what are the added costs? Jill is obviously furious at the suggestion that they're going to use his powers as a get-rich-quick scheme and dumps all the pasta they made together into the sink. But very quickly, Frank talks her into it like it's just a practical plan. Frank almost threatens her by pointing out that if they don't move forward with his plan, someone else will have a plan for Lester. Jill asks Frank if he loves Lester, and he lies that he does, and he loves her too. You're missing my whole point. Well, what is the point? Lester's a very special kid. Kid? He's 2,000 years old. Uh, <laughs> I'm telling you, you hurt that kid, I'll murder you. Never. I would never hurt that kid. And again, she's completely changed yep. her mind. We cut to some high society ladies talking about Mary the bag lady. She's bringing over $54,000 to pay for a makeover. Back in the station, Lester tells Frank the answers come to him when he shines shoes. Jill tries to diagnose the condition. Precognition. Who needs pyramid power? Lester, do you remember being a slave in Egypt? Not in Egypt. <laughs> I, I, it's a dumb line, but I still laughed at it. Um... Do you guys recall the last time we mentioned pyramid power? Sphinx? I think it was Sphinx, yeah. Because <laughs> she's complaining about how in America when you tell someone you're an Egyptologist, all anyone wants to hear about is pyramid power. Mm. And yet she was an Egyptologist who had no concept of how large the pyramids were. And spoke not a word of any Egyptian language. <laughs> I still like that movie. Yep. <laughs> Lester sees the names Glorious Gloria army boots and lucky me and frank runs to place the bet we cut to four women bathing mary simultaneously and it reminded me of dumb and dumber when the guys are throwing stacks of cash at a makeover actually it's kind of like the scene in uh the little mermaid too when they're all trying to clean her up and make her a high society person lester's horses win and frank collects fifty thousand dollars but an irs rep catches him on his way out of the betting office and asks him to fill out paperwork uh i don't know if that's how that works in a racetrack i know that in vegas if you win big like in a poker hand or something like that they will stop the table and you will have to fill out some kind of like a 1099 of sorts yeah uh for your winnings i wouldn't be surprised if there is someone like that at a horse race place i just don't do that very often and we, we made the point earlier when mary said she won all of her money that she had to pay half of it to the government mm -hmm. so the implication here is that he's literally signing a piece of paper that says 
exactly how much he won and that 50% even is going to go to the government. But Frank is rolling his eyes like the taxes are going to negate all of his winnings, even though he just made Mm $25,000. I mean, depending on how much he put down for the bet in the first place. But still, that's a lot of money. Yeah, if Mary was rich with half of that or twice that much, yeah, then he's half as rich. Yeah, I mean, well, and just do it again, right? But do it he, with bigger and bigger stacks of money and pay your share to the government. Nobody's going to stop you. But he doesn't like contributing to society. Frank decides that he has to just do everything over again to make up the difference. But he doesn't want to pay taxes the second time. But that is the exact antithesis of the second half of this movie, right? Because all Lester cares about is the city. The money going to the city, right. So all they had to do was just keep betting legitimately, and it would have gone to the government. (laughs) Lester doesn't want to pick horses again, in spite of Frank's begging, and Jill is clearly disturbed by his desperation. Doesn't do anything to interrupt it, though. She just looks bummed about it and lets him keep bugging the kid until he gets horses. Later, Jill and Lester hang out, waiting for him to return with the money, but the later it gets, the more convinced Jill is that he's not coming back. He asks her if she loves Frank, and when she hesitates to answer, he reads off a list of different kinds of love. I guess loving somebody from the neck down, what you call necrophilia, then there's sadism and masochism and sadomasochism and masochism, and then there's a whole lot of sick stuff. (laughs) It's like, who is putting all these words in Gary Coleman's 10-year-old mouth? I guess he's 12 or 13 here, but still. Frank finds a man at the park and tries to place a $50,000 bet on the triple, but the guy warns him that it's a sucker bet. The man phones it into his mafia boss, and the guy approves the bet because there's no way that it would pay out. Turns out the odds are 20 to 1, which is kind of a crappy payoff unless I'm misunderstanding the bet. They keep calling it a triple, and I was trying to look up what a triple is. I guess that's first place in show. Is is that three separate races? No, uh, I would I would say that... I, I don't know what a triple is. First yeah. of all, let me say that. Um, because I, I, I assumed it was that, which I've always called a trifecta. Mm. When you pick who's going to get first place, who's going to get second place, and who's going to get third place in a right. race. But it seems like when he says triple, he's literally picking the first place winner of three separate races. Oh, then I don't know. Which I, I'm not very familiar with. But either but, way. But that would imply that there's only three races in a day. I guess. Because the, the triple. Yeah, but later on, there's something that makes me think that that is what a triple means here. Mm. But I, I couldn't find but a definition. Yeah, because I feel like at some point in the movie, they talk about do, calling the triple at different tracks. So it seems like that, or maybe the, there's three main races or mm. primary races or something like that. But they yeah. talk about, you know, basically betting the triple at multiple locations. Because but it's it something on you could only do once a day at each right. track. Yeah. right. When I used to play Vegas Stakes for Super Nintendo, the, <laughs> the trifecta always had the biggest payoff in the entire casino because it's nearly impossible to get it right unless you can save state, like if you're playing a ROM and you right, save right, state. Right. But uh, in my experience, the trifecta means you're picking first, second, and third place horses in the order that they will win. Yeah. But in the 2020 Preakness, for example, a trifecta earned a payout of 1,200 to one. So 20 to one seems like incredible odds unless there's only three or four horses in this race the only race that we actually see happening has seven horses in frame so it should pay off more than 20 to 1 unless i'm wrong about what a triple means the mob boss approves the bet and his son fails to talk him out of it take the bet dead at 20 to 1 you know what the payoff would be 
Take it. Sucker bet. We cut right to Frank calling the track to learn the winning triple, and he has scored a million dollars tax-free because the second bet was placed with the mob and not the racetrack. But I feel like if you are the mob and you're taking a bet like that, you would be cautious because you'd be like, who would bet that amount of money mm-hmm. on something that was such a long shot? They have to be rigging it, and then you'd right. be furious. Yeah. But the other thing that bothers me is that it's like, especially at the time in 1980, it didn't cost a million dollars to raise a kid. Like, that's too much money. You're, what you're doing is ridiculous. Well, I think well, he's not actually getting the money to raise the kid. But Correct. that's what that's what he's claiming it's for. Well, but, yeah, but he's also this girl's an idiot. So, <laughs> but he could have made this same bet at the horse race, like uh, legitimately, yeah. at the track, and made all this money and paid half of it, and still he would walk away with five hundred and fifty thousand dollars cash that he made in two days. But instead. He had to get super greedy about it. Well, it's like, who would have thought that you couldn't trust the mob yeah. to pay out a million dollars? I wouldn't pay want it out, to. Though. That's well, true. Yeah. They, they can't get a reputation for not. Out of nowhere, the plan is to make Lester the president of a company with this million dollars they just made. Lester suggests that they set up an office for him down here, since he's still terrified of the world outside the station. Jill decides to test him by admitting she got a callback from her audition. And she invites him to the show, but he's too terrified to leave. Back in the mafia guy's office, he's coming to terms with the million-dollar payout, and he concludes that Frank cheated somehow, and he demands that his henchmen get his money back. A car full of henchmen try to intercept the million-dollar handoff. Frank asks to get out of the cab in traffic to escape his tail. He talks Lester into stashing this bag of money in his storage locker, even as Lester points out that it could generate $4,000 in profits every day at a bank. And he's like, well, we can't take it to a bank because then they'll ask where I got it. And it's like, this is why you should have paid the money at yeah. the horse races because you would have gotten it and it would have been on the record. But oh. banks don't actually question that. No. It, it depends on how much money. I mean, the, the government might question you for putting it in the bank, but the bank isn't going to question you. Right. Yeah. When Frank gets the bag of money from the bookie yeah, and the mob guys are watching and they say follow him and they put on a guy puts on like a fake mustache in the and car and it's like hanging off sideways and, and and the mob guy says they don't know that we're following him but frank says those guys don't think that i know that they're following me yeah so so he knew how dangerous this was yeah but he also knows that they're being followed and watched then why do they so casually put this thing in a locker and not think that someone might be watching them and why is he letting lester say out loud this is too much you're putting a million dollars in this locker here yeah but that's what they do. And if Lester's so smart, why doesn't he know about offshore accounts? Exactly. I can't tell you a thing about that client's secret illegal account. <laughs> I definitely shouldn't have said it was illegal. Oh, it's too hot today. The mafia guys watch them tuck the money into the locker, and then Frank tells the kid he's so excited that he wants to touch Jill all over. I should mention that up to now we've gotten little jealous glances from Lester every time the relationship blossoms between frank and jill but here lester flat out admits that he would like to touch jill all over also which is a weird character trait for your 10 year old prepubescent boy all right now i'm gonna go see jill i gotta, I gotta touch her all over and kiss her me too oh you, got, you dirty old man all right come on <laughs> we're gonna go touch jill. let's go touch jill all over <laughs> <laughs> he tries to drag lester to where jill is but then remembers that she's outside the station 
His next brilliant plan, based on Lester feeling comfortable in the locker, is to carry Lester out in an oversized suitcase with an eye hole cut in it. On the L train, a man steals the suitcase with Lester inside, and Frank can't keep up with the man. He can't even get off of the train at the same he platform. He can't keep up with a man carrying a large child <laughs> yeah. in a suitcase. Yeah. Carrying a Gary Coleman. I don't think he noticed right away that the, that the case got taken, but he probably shouldn't have let go of it at all. Yeah. The guy drags Lester into a back alley and unzips the suitcase. When Lester informs the thief that he doesn't have any money, the man moves to a more disturbing demand. Give me your money! I got no money! Take your clothes off! You can't get much for these! Take your clothes off! We cut abruptly from a maniac yelling for Lester to strip naked to Frank walking leisurely back from the next train platform to figure out where Lester went. Hmm, where did that silly kid go? We cut to Lester dressing in a cardboard box with armholes and stealing socks from a street vendor. Frank finds Jill at Gino's, that's a bar, where she's singing, and the two team up to look for Lester together. At the station, the mafia is stealing the entire wall of lockers where Frank and Lester hid the money. Lester meets up with Frank and Jill and swears never to leave the station again. They find the baggage locker is gone. Frank isn't just broke, he's $25,000 in debt because he bet the whole 50000 on the second race, including the half that he owes to the IRS. They head into Shakey's to drown their sorrows in pizza when Lester sees Mary on the TV. She tells everyone about the magical homeless kid in the train station that can pick horses. They cut to the mayor, played by Norman Fell, who plans to investigate the claims of a homeless child living at the station. Lester tries to make a run for it to avoid attention, but the mayor's coming down the steps in a cloud of press right at the same time. The mayor speaks with Sam outside Shakey's and asks why nobody reported the kid, and Sam says he never saw a reason to. Behind them, a janitor dumps trash into a bin where Lester was hiding, and he shouts. The press and mayor and friends all chase Lester as he climbs up to the massive product placement billboard in the middle of the station. A giant Baby Ruth and Butterfinger chocolate bar take up half the frame for the rest of the scene. He threatens to jump if they follow him up. The mayor's people tell him that he will get reelected if he can talk this kid down. Come on, Lester, how long are you going to stay up there? Until I die, and you're all going to die before me. <laughs> I, like, I, like that <laughs> I like that line a lot, but it like, made me sad when you do some math and you're like, wait, uh, Lisa and Michael Lembeck are still around, and Gary Coleman's been gone for 10 years now. That's crazy that that was 10 years ago already. Yeah. The mayor makes a deal with Frank and Jill that when this is over, they can just have this kid. <laughs> they don't need to figure out who his parents are or what his situation is. He just says, you can take this kid home with you if we can get him down. Yeah, they never, ever go into that in this movie. I guess maybe it'd be too sad, but I just, like, you don't find out what happened to his parents, nope. like, why he's down here. And it doesn't seem, like, they say he's only been down here for six months. So it's like, this whatever is happened is recent. Yeah. The mayor decides to climb up after Lester to have a conversation with him. The press narrate his slow climb up the 30-foot ladder in painfully low-effort ADR. I'm convinced this was like an assistant editor whose voice was never intended to stay in the film because she's not even doing a reporter voice. Mm -hmm. He's going up the ladder to talk to the little boy. This is amazing. Everyone knows the mayor is afraid of heights. When could that possibly have come up? Why does everyone know that the mayor is afraid of heights? And it plays nothing into the scene. No. Everyone applauds when he reaches the top. The mayor insists that the city outside this station is worth living in, even if it's in a terrible fiscal crisis. The mayor tells Lester that the law says he needs a home 
and schooling. And Lester points out, You went to school and you can't solve the fiscal crisis. Lester pretends that he's going to fall off the ledge, but eventually gives up and sits down next to the mayor. Lester proposes that he can solve the mayor's fiscal problems by cheating on horse races in exchange for an office to run a business from down here in the station. Apparently, a million dollars is enough to solve the city's problems, and the mayor agrees to the plan. Lester tries to tell the press about their fiscal plans, and the mayor gets a hand over his mouth because he doesn't want them to know, oh yeah, we we hired this magical homeless kid to, to solve all races. of our problems. I mean, I don't think that the mayor is under any delusion that a million dollars is going to solve all of the city's problems. No. But he does want to get this kid down peacefully, right. and if this is what it takes, and the city gets a million dollars, all the better. That's probably true. <laughs> Jill asks Frank to elaborate on what he told the mayor about them getting married to raise Lester together, but Frank says that they'll talk about it later. We cut to Robert at the health club, wrapping Lester up in a towel outside the showers. Why did this 10-year-old boy need to get naked three times in this movie? Was that really necessary? Were they worried that the audience would be like, oh, well, he's homeless, he's not bathing enough. Let's show him bathing often. <laughs> Lester asks the mayor if he can stay in one of the train cars that isn't running, and he's granted a week's rent free. By then, Frank will marry Jill, and they'll adopt you. Then we won't have these problems. He promises the child with no such agreement right. made. Why do they have to be married? Well, because otherwise yeah, it's... Yeah, it's the 80s. Like, I mean, it's the same thing with, like, Little Miss Marker. It's like, well, if you guys get married, you can mm. take this child. We can't possibly give it to a single parent. That's true. I, I didn't see this, but I guess he asks for $200 up front. Somehow, Gary Coleman has 200 bucks already. Yeah, the, the mayor does give him the money. Uh, and I guess it's the startup capital. Yeah. Um, but he wants to get his business off the ground. He intends to purchase a line of rolling carts and employ other street urchins as porters to help people transport their luggage throughout the station. Frank basically says that it's dumb to work for the money when we have a cheat code at the horse races. Robert seems disappointed to see the situation that they're putting Lester in. Lester asks if he can stay at the health club tonight, and after Jill and Frank leave, Robert asks if they're really going to adopt him, and Lester seems certain that they are all talk. He is used to disappointment at this point. Which makes me think that his parents aren't dead, that they left him here, that mm -hmm. he's used to being abandoned. This whole time I thought they actually intended to adopt him, but we cut to Jill and Frank on a walk, wondering how they're going to break it to the kid that they're monsters who have been lying all day about adopting him. Like, yeah. who is this woman now? Like, she was 100% yeah. on his side mm -hmm. at the beginning this, of this movie. I, I don't even think the script realizes that this is a twist. Yeah. That they've been leading us along to think the same thing that he thinks. Yeah. Which is that, yes, they're obviously going to adopt him because she seems like a really nice person. Maybe Frank's going to back out of it, but right. clearly she's right. she's Her intentions are serious. pure. Yeah. And I was yeah. just like, what is and this? And she's like, well, when are we going to tell him that we're both shits? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, what? You're both shits? Yeah, my, my note here is this Frank and Jill thing is the worst. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't want to be adopted. Special kids like that, geniuses, you know, they're, uh, they're better off without parents. Jill asks why Frank ever talked about taking Lester home if this whole thing was a joke, and Frank admits that he knew the whole time that the kid could game genie the trifectas. Well, that makes you an opportunist and a louse. Okay, so I'm a lousy opportunist. <laughs> but, um, I love you. Voila, she's back <laughs> on his side. This lady is an impossible pushover. They make out by the waterfront. Back in Robert's office, Lester is invited to see his furnished office car. 
they've painted a house on the outside of a train with a full porch and flowers and everything and inside there's a full kitchen with built-ins and a stove and a countertop but this is a working train station right yeah. where have you parked this train that it's, the kids... it's just on a track that's not in use he said yeah. it's on track four or something like okay it's like we never use track four just nope. live there <laughs> they could still move if they need it to his office is random. Like, what station is my office in right now? It's a four o'clock. Oh, it's over. Yeah, <laughs> it's moving around. It also has a nice office desk with a train lamp and a phone. Because he asked for it to be furnished so it could be a business write-off or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. Or write off on his taxes. And I'm like, oh, you're paying taxes. The next morning, dozens of kids are crowded around to join Lester's company. He's trying to talk them through the requirements of the job, but suddenly Sam is hassling him for today's triple. The shoeshine man interrupts him again, and Lester promises to provide the triple at Sam's place at lunch today. In his office, Lester tells the kids that they can expect to collect 10 bucks an hour from their work, and that $2 each will go to him from that $10. So he's going to get $2 an hour from them, and they can work as many hours as they want. All he asks is that they provide service with a smile, and he goes around judging everybody's smiles to make sure they're going to do a good job. $8 an hour in the 80s. Yeah, that's decent money. That's better than minimum wage now. We get a quick montage of kids helping people out all over the station, most against their will. The mayor stops by to visit and reminds Lester not to talk about the city's illicit plans. Lester presents a list of demands for the new city budget. Well, we'll take on more cops, more firemen. More sanitation workers? Right. More teachers? You got them. Kill the rats? Kill a lot of rats. School lunches with Twinkies? Twinkies, a lot of Twinkies. You can tell that Norman Fell and Gary Coleman are actually having fun with this moment. Like, it's there's a funny energy to the way they're talking mm -hmm. to each other. It's great. But a million dollars is not going to buy, like, any one of those things. No. <laughs> nope. You might be able to kill a lot of rats with a million dollars. Pay the kids $8. They, they can't digest <laughs> money. An hour for every rat they can eat. <laughs> rats cannot digest money. <laughs> they can eat Just... anything except money. <laughs> People don't realize that. Stop giving your rats birthday cakes made out of money. What? In Shakey's at lunch, all of Lester's friends wait around for him to announce the triple while he finishes eating a pizza. Can we put, can we put friends in air quotes? It's, it's in quotes here. I just didn't read that out loud. <laughs> they were friends before the film, and now they're friends. Again, you can't see, but I'm putting quotes around it. <laughs> Frank offers Lester a shine box like it's a gift and not encouragement to announce the triple for today. It's High Sierra, Army Boots, Doyle They all run to place their bets, but he stops them to switch the third horse to Sweet Vinegar and then back again to Gloria Rolls. They crowd the radio at race time and Sweet Vinegar squeaks the lead at the end of the race, meaning that Lester's triple was wrong. One person in the crowd picked it right, though, not trusting Lester's last-minute adjustment. But the radio announces that, for whatever reason, Sweet Vinegar has been disqualified, so Lester picks up the win again. But the announcer on the radio says, Sweet Vinegar goes from first to last. So if it was a trifecta and he said Sweet Vinegar was going to get third place, mm -hmm. then it, wouldn't, it would go from third to last, not from first to last. So the fact that Sweet Vinegar had first place in this race and then it went to gloria rolls makes me think that these are three separate races yeah in his office lester collects his share of his employees hourly rate a bully enters and steals the whole stack of cash after hours 
Lester and the bully wrestle by the tracks in a foreboding red light, and I was sure someone was about to get hit by a train. Yeah, same here. But eventually the bully just throws Lester to the floor. Sorry, kid, but my sister needs a nose job. Later, Robert tries to talk his son into acting as Lester's security, but he doesn't seem interested. I don't know what it takes to get you kids started today. Maybe he just needs the proper motivation. No, that's not it. Maybe he needs a hit on the head. No, that's not it. Maybe he needs three bucks an hour. That's it. (laughs) I really like this back and forth. The next morning, we learn that Frank has made nationwide plans to cheat horse races all over the country and get some of their own money on top of the mayor's million. All of Lester's friends give him tiny slivers of the cash that he won for them, and he thanks them for it, <laughs> like they didn't owe him half of everything they made. Yeah. He tells his friends his plans for the city. I'm going to make it a city, uh, a city, a city of plenty, where vice and poverty shall not fester, where success shall be founded on service, where honor shall be given to noblest loan. Where order shall not rest on force, but on the love of all for the city. This Man Rand shit going on there. Yeah. <laughs> Frank hops on planes to win races all over the country. Late that night, Lester and Jill wait for Frank at the arcade, but he hasn't shown up. Jill seems convinced that he's left them with the money, which is apparently totally in character ever since I found out that they were just joshing the kid about adopting him. Mm-hmm. It's 2 a.m. when Frank finally walks in and everybody kisses. The next day, the mayor holds a press conference outside Lester's train house. For some reason, it's expected to help the mayor in the polls for people to see him take $1 million away from a homeless child. (laughs) The mob boss lectures his team again for not getting his money back, and he vows to solve the problem himself. Back in the office, Lester is dealt a one-two punch of learning that another pack of kids are undercutting his porter business, and the mayor is throwing the entire million-dollar check at the city's debt he won't buy any of the improvements that lester was promised lester is disappointed that he was lied to and that he was forced to lie to the public on television frank talks lester into raking in more money to get back at the world but jill urges them to reconsider they tell her to grow up jill makes frank confess that they were never going to adopt him she admits the same and cries before walking away later lester announces the triple to his normal crowd of friends and also the mob boss infiltrating the crowd but he gets it wrong this time and everybody gives him shit about it. Sam complains about the payments he owes on his wife's brand new Cadillac. Lester says that he's giving up on these horse races for good, and Frank says, cool, time to get trashed. I gotta go somewhere and get drunk. We see the mob boss's office getting emptied out because now he's lost everything, because he bet on what the kid said to try and win all of his money back at the last second, and it turns out it didn't work out. Lester gets kicked out of the train car, and Mark, Robert's son, is standing over his carts. Lester gives the business to Mark to run and returns to his work as a shoeshine boy. Mary sits down with Lester on some stairs. She tries to cheer him up by reminding him how many good years he has ahead of him. I came down here because I was afraid up there. I'm afraid down here. He cries in her arms for a bit and then moves to put all of his stuff in a new locker. Jill shows up and tries to talk Lester into going outside again. She got that singing job, so she doesn't intend to visit anymore. Lester tells her that he's not interested, but when Frank shows up, Lester immediately forgives them both. Like, he doesn't care about Jill, but then when Frank comes out, he's like, Oh, Frank, oh my gosh, you're so great. I can't believe you came down here. You're the first person to get down here to say something to me. Jill's just crying in the corner. 
They throw his locker keys in the trash instead of returning them like I would have assumed you're supposed yeah. to. And 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 if you watch this close-up insert of the keys in the trash... They're like dripping. Yeah, I was like, oh, it's what weird. is that? Yeah. <laughs> they walk him to the steps out of the station and he stops again. Maybe if you tell him it's going to be okay out there. Lester, it stinks up there. No more lies. Come on. We'll take it one step at a time. At the top of the steps, Lester announces, Did I tell you I can take the stock market? Freeze frame, and we're out. And then we get that weird color pattern yeah. over the credits. Red, white, and blue. Our director here was Lee Phillips. All TV before this, all TV after. Writer Avery Buddy, only this. Richard Moses, one title before this, but this was his last title. Lester Pine, all TV leading to this, nothing after. Tina Pine, all TV leading to this, nothing after. Meaning that the four people who wrote this film never worked again. <laughs> As writers. As writers. <laughs> they weren't shunned from society. No, they, 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 <laughs> the, they based the story on a real homeless kid, and they lived off of that kid for the rest of their lives. Perfect. Editor Bill Butler, he cut A Clockwork Orange and Gorp and How to Beat the High Cost of Living. The only one I recognized after this was Up the Creek from 1984. Gary Coleman played Lester. He has credits dating back to 1974 when he was just six years old. He's best known as Arnold Jackson, initially from The Facts of Life and later Different Strokes, and finally in an episode of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Because he was so well-known, he plays himself in a lot of stuff, like The Ben Stiller Show, The Naked Truth, A Bunch of the Simpsons, and Dirty Work. What you talking about, Satan? He does the voice of Kenny Falmouth in Curse of the Monkey Island. Yeah. <laughs> and he passed away in 2010 from an epidermal hematoma after a fall down some stairs. Maureen Stapleton played Mary the Bag Lady. She's Mama Mae Peterson in Bye Bye Birdie. She's Inez Guerrero in Airport. And she's Pearl in Interiors. Later this year, we'll see her in The Fan and Reds. But my favorite from her is probably Ma Kelly in Johnny Dangerously, the mother of the two brothers that lead the film. Norman Fell played the mayor. He's best known as Stanley Roper from Three's Company mm -hmm. and later from The Ropers, his yeah. own spinoff. He also shows up in Transylvania 65000, The Graduate, and Chud 2, Bud the Chud. Michael Lembeck was Frank Biscardi. We saw him last year as Cavell in Gorp. He has mostly TV work for his acting credits, but he's probably better known for his directing on such shows as Coach, Major Dad, News Radio, Everybody Loves Raymond, Mad About You, A Bunch of Friends, Two Guys, A Girl, and A Pizza Place, and later, The Santa Claus 2 and 3. Lisa Eilbacher played Jill Klein. She was Ellen Wood in Bad Ronald before this, and she followed this up as Casey Seeger in An Officer and a Gentleman, and then Jenny Summers in Beverly Hills Cop. Bill Russell was Robert. He's a former center for the Boston Celtics, and he's a five-time NBA MVP, He's won 11 championships with the Celtics, which is still the world record for an athlete in any North American sports league. Herb Edelman played Sam. He's in Barefoot in the Park and The Odd Couple, but he's probably best known for his TV work. He was Burt Grammis on 42 episodes of The Good Guys. He was Big John on Big John Little John. He was on the 9 to 5 series and a couple episodes of Trapper John, as far as shows that we've covered the movies for. Right. Richard and I probably know him best from his multiple appearances on MacGyver in The Lost Amadeus, Faith, Hope, and Charity, and Split Decision. He was also B. Arthur's ex-husband on The Golden Girls. Nathan Davis played Mario. He was Kane in Poltergeist 3. He played the grandfather in Holes. 
and also a grandfather in Flowers in the Attic. Paige Hanna played Sally. She was tour guide number one in Gremlins 2. I'm assuming that's one of the people that wears the silly building hats. Right, right, right. Um, and she was also Rachel in the Raft segment of Creepshow 2. Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. Debbie Hall played the bride, and I think that's the bride in the in the fake wedding that Gary Coleman has to a child. Oh, the, the little girl. Yeah. Uh, she has lots of soundtrack credits as a singer, starting with uh, Fear No Evil director Frank Lelogia's Lady in White, um, and then on through Titan AE, Van Helsing, War of the Worlds, The Simpsons Movie, uh, The Watchmen, Ghostbusters 3, Star Trek Beyond, Rogue One, and War for Planet of the Apes. Hmm. Jamie Gertz played Big Girl. I'm assuming she's one of the other kids that yeah. uh, is trying to join the company. This was her first feature, and soon after she was Muffy Tepperman on Square Pegs. She appeared alongside Gary Coleman in an episode of Different Strokes. She's Robin in 16 Candles, Bill Paxton's wife in Twister. She played Judy Miller in 88 episodes of Still Standing, and she plays Gary Cole's wife on Entourage. That's everything I had for the cast. Uh, did you did you you said something about the person who did the music? The but, music, um, it, I I don't have it written down. If you can look it up, I believe yeah. it's, I believe it's Larry, not Larry Lasker. Larry Lasker was the producer of War Games. Um, Arthur B. Rubenstein. Arthur B. Rubenstein. Um, uh, I I mean I only know his his music from War Games. Yeah. Um, and I could yeah, I don't hear, recognize a lot of the other stuff here. And I could, but I could hear a lot of the War Games score in this movie. Like, composers often have like a. Uh, a well that they go back to yeah. for for beats and things like that. And I was like, yeah, I can hear war games in this for sure. He also did Stakeout and another Stakeout in terms of things I recognize from this yeah, list. Yeah, yeah. Um, for this film, I decided that we should present our suggestions for our favorite homeless people from films. And I asked you each to bring, I think, five uh, yes. homeless characters. Did you come up with five? Yeah, I'm sure we have some overlap. Yeah, I'm here. guessing yeah. we do, but yeah. we can do like a sort of a round robin here. Are we going like in any particular order? No. What am I, am what, I going first? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, I think the first one that came to my mind, like before anything else, was the the bird lady from Home Alone Two. Yeah. Uh, oddly, I have a different bird lady. Oh. I have the bird lady from Mary Poppins. Oh. Poppins. Oh, okay. Yeah. I feel like the bird lady from Home Alone is probably based on a Mary Poppins bird lady. <laughs> That's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> Um, my first one was Robin Williams in The Fisher King. That's a good one. I have that too. And then what's your next one? Um, well, I think that um, my friend Andrea would be very upset if I did not say Joe, Joe Pesci, Pesci from, from With, With Honors. Honors. <laughs> uh, that I have, yeah, I have Joe Pesci as Simon from With Honors online. Yeah, she's a big fan of that movie. <laughs> um, what's another one from your list that hasn't been said, Richard? Um, I have this was and this is why I clarified if if someone is squatting in a home but doesn't actually live there or own it, does it count? Is this Stephen Wright? Uh, no, uh, because I feel like even though guy on a couch, <laughs> if that's what you were going <laughs> yeah, with, half big. Um, and and but I also didn't want to say like Brad Pitt and Fight Club. You know, what about Brad Pitt in? Oh, uh, true, true romance. True romance. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, no, so I was going with uh, Pippi Longstocking. Because she moves into the abandoned house next door uh, and uh, with she, her horse yeah. and monkey. and She's a homeless child. Yeah. I'll go with that. Yeah. Um, my next choice was Jim Downey from Dirty Work. He was a longtime writer for SNL. And he's the guy in uh, in 
Billy Madison who says everyone is now dumber for having heard it. <laughs> but <laughs> he guy. he uh he's one of the homeless guys that waits outside of the the building where uh Shooter McGavin works and uh it's obviously he's not Shooter McGavin in this movie <laughs> in Dirty Work. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Uh he might as well be, but he's he's talking about how he still has his dignity and that's something that they can't take away and Norm Macdonald just throws a bunch of money at him and tells him to just pretend he's crazy in the building so that they can form a distraction for him christopher mcdonald is travis cole real estate magnate in that film um yeah so that was my next one uh so i uh the the second one that popped into my head was herman from scrooged that's a lovable, that's a good one I like lovable that. homeless man yeah yeah I, I think all three of those homeless characters are a lot of fun because it's it's ann and logan ramsey yeah uh, I, I i have put them on my list too um i i'll lay it up and we, we did discuss this a little bit, so I tried to avoid ones that we had been discussing. Sure. So I uh, didn't, because that was more work. <laughs> <laughs> um, another one on my list is uh, Curly Sue. Ah, no, you went Not with familiar. the homeless children. That's yeah, good. I did went, you put I, Oliver Twist on there too? <laughs> uh, no, uh, no. I mean, I guess I, he lives in the orphanage. Yeah, he has a home for but some then, of it. But then he does. He gets thrown out, and yeah. he lives with Fagin for a while. But he's got a place. He's got a bed. I guess. I mean, most of these people have a place to sleep. That doesn't That's mean true. it's their home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the rest of mine, the one I have, are not children. So, okay. uh, my third one was the guy from UHF uh, that ends up saving the station in the finale. Mm. <laughs> Spoiler alert! But um, he's uh, just wandering around. I, I like. I am. I find myself impersonating him a lot. But there's like <laughs> the scene where he keeps bothering people for change, and when uh, when Kevin McCarthy is coming out of the building, and he's like, "Change, Mister," and <laughs> 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 he gives them all the the money he's like okay here yeah here's a bunch of change he's like 95 one dollar and he gives a dollar back to kevin mccarthy like he was just trying to break it and then at the end of the film it turns out that one of the coins that he gave him was worth like tens of thousands of dollars Mm. um but yeah i like that i like that character that he plays um in that film uh so like in terms of good performances i have dustin hoffman in midnight cowboy oh okay yeah that's a good one uh, I have Jason Lee as Puggy from Big Trouble, which I think you probably haven't even seen that film, have you? I saw it like once. Do you do you remember Big Trouble with Tim Allen and Renee Russo? The cast is amazing. Yeah, but... I don't know. Whenever you say Big Trouble, I just assume you're abbreviating in Little China. No, <laughs> yeah, no. no, this is a different movie. <laughs> no, I, I don't remember that one. It's it's a very small film, but it was funny and it had a really great cast. Yeah, it was withheld from the theaters because of nine eleven. Because there's a lot of stuff at an airport. Yeah, and and about smuggling, how easy it was to smuggle a bomb oh, into Jesus. an airport. Yeah, um, but uh, the cast is great, and and Puggy is the the opening narrator for the movie. Right, um, and he like he lives in a tree in their backyard. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's fun. Um, the next one I have is Can Man from the 1988 The Blob. Hmm. The guy who finds the blob, right? Yeah, the, yeah, who gets his whole arm sucked into the blob. Mm. I, I really like the '88 blob. It's so good, and uh, he gets a lot of the effects work on him specifically. But uh, I like that character that he plays, and he sort of instigates the whole film by poking at this meteorite with a stick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've touched on all mine. So oh, okay, I'm out. Oh, well, the only one I have left on here was uh, Charlie Chaplin's character in City Lights. Oh, okay. 
Um, and then I know I had tried to uh, coerce you away from train car hobos. Yes, I know. Uh, Otherwise, A number one would have been my yes. pick from Emperor of the North. But I did pick one hobo character who I consider more of a homeless person than a hobo because a hobo, I think of train cars. I think of mm-hmm. traveling. Um, but hobo with a shotgun <laughs> uh, is, a, is a homeless character that I that I enjoyed on film. Is Some that of, his name? Well, that's the name of the film. <laughs> I know that's but the Rutger Hauer plays the character. I don't mm-hmm. remember what the actual hobo's name is, <laughs> the titular hobo. Um, but some of the Twitter submissions, uh, Letters to Media went for The Pigeon Lady from Home Alone 2. Uh, Michael C. put in a vote for Trading Places, presumably Eddie Murphy, though he could mean the Duke Brothers by the end of the film. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I didn't even think of Eddie Murphy. At Anthropic Axiom also picked Robin Williams from Fisher King. At Nam underscore OV picked Tom Waits as Rudy in Ironweed, which I haven't mm. actually seen. Yeah, I don't know that one. Uh, but he sent along a line from the character doc says i got cancer first thing i ever got (laughs) i like the line mike lamb combined those two to choose tom waits from the fisher king okay which i I would bet that tom waits probably plays quite a few homeless characters (laughs) over the course of his career you know it's interesting now i reflect back on uh that he would have been a great devil choice too from imaginarium of dr parnassus oh yeah he is great in that on the Discord side, we had listener Tanya suggest Will Smith in The Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, I actually okay. haven't seen that movie yet. I, I and, and it's funny because that made me. I, as soon as you said Will Smith, I was thinking Hancock. <laughs> I guess he's kind of that one too? yeah. He's he like, starts it kind of a drunk hobo, but then yeah. he just has superpowers and he can destroy things. I haven't seen either of those movies. You know the premise of Hancock, though, right? I don't know. He's a superhero. He's just a wash-up superhero who like doesn't see the point of being nice to people. Okay. Uh, Steven Sperling had suggested uh, the magically wise homeless person from Bullworth. Oh, yeah. That's a great one. You got to be a spirit. No (laughs) ghost. Uh, And he also, uh, one of the first ones that came to his head was Nick Nolte in Down and Out in Beverly Hills, which he says he did not like, but (laughs) that's another homeless character. (laughs) Ray H. suggested Emil Hirsch in Into the Wild. Um, Alexander Supertramp when he just wanders off and eats all the wrong plants and dies in a bus <laughs> spoiler like alert <laughs> it looks like that's all the suggestions that we had from the internet but if you want to suggest some to add to our next list follow us on yeah. twitter yeah stay on top of it and we'll we'll post one we have upcoming records and we're looking for a category to uh to fill in um but yeah i i actually like this movie more than i thought i was going to um, I think the writing was sharper than I expected. I thought it was going to be very cheesy TV safe stuff mm-hmm. and it took way more risks with the humor than I thought it would. Um, yeah. I, I mean, the Gary Coleman character is amazing. Yeah. I, I and think, if you're going to give anybody in here a Razzie nomination, not Gary Coleman. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But if, yeah, if they had only given the, the girl a more well-rounded personality that wasn't so wishy-washy throughout the whole thing, I think that it could have been a good movie. I don't even think that it's an unrealistic character. Like I, I would, I would bet that someone that's as optimistic and like <laughs> kind to people is willing to just oh, that much you're, of a pushover? susceptible to yeah. schmoozing. Um, but it was annoying to find out that the two of them together had conspired against Gary Coleman. Yeah, yeah. and that it was like this whole time, even I thought their plan was to adopt him, and then it turns out, when are we going to tell him? And it's like <laughs> yeah. what? Yeah, because it, it just it doesn't make any sense. No, it should have it should have been him telling her 
there that it wasn't going to happen and her not knowing until then and then after he told her that he didn't have any intention to do it then she says something like well what are we supposed to do how are we going to tell him that because i thought this was real and now well, you're telling and me then this. she should break it off with him and then there, there needs to be a redeeming act where he goes and figures out a way to get gary coleman out of you know the train station yeah. and, and 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 then and brings him to her and be like i'm sorry look you know he's okay and yeah let's let's do this let's adopt him but instead they just blatantly tell each other that they're they're mean people and then he's like but i love you and she's like oh yeah you do let's kiss let's kiss more um do we know where this is going uh well up or down i think for me this is actually gonna be i don't know what do you what do you got hey you could go first for once (laughs) Uh, i'm gonna go with a thumbs i I don't know on this one i'm gonna say a thumbs up (laughs) uh if if you can find like a a blu-ray somewhere because I don't think it's it's worth watching in the quality we saw it in. It was kind of blurry, standard def. Um, but I like the story, and if it were higher quality picture, then I would say this is worth checking out. I'm gonna give it a thumbs down. All right. <laughs> I mean, I think that there were you know quippy moments of dialogue, and I liked Gary Coleman a lot. But I think that's all the movie had going for it. I think the the horse betting plots is, is kind of weird and I never really understood why he's down in this train station or what, what, what his situation in life is. And I didn't like this, this girl's character at all. I do feel like we struck on a story element that they should have included that, that the same curse that gives him this knowledge of the races makes above ground such bad luck for him. Yeah. Um, that for some reason, this property is what gives him his magical powers. Well, and he also establishes that he can't, use his power for on himself right and it's like well what are the consequences of that does it just not work or does do they lose and aren't you doing that though aren't you getting some of this money from people aren't you benefiting from these yeah but i guess not directly like he's indirectly that that's the the workaround i don't know the the rules aren't clear it's a dumb loophole because he wasn't going to be able to place the bet himself anyway right and and they don't and and while jill believes his powers to be magical Frank does have a line real quick that that he understands statistics. Yeah. And and he's just reading the statistics and able to to calculate the winner. Yeah. Um it's a thumbs down for me by the way. <laughs> uh, okay. I, I uh th- there's there's too much there's almost too much going on and I hate so many of the characters that it, it I mean it, I don't hate Gary Coleman uh but like this whole uh, like Basically the only two good characters are Gary Coleman and Robert. <laughs> Yeah, and because even Mary sells him out on TV, I was like, "Why are these people talking about him?" Yeah, um, and so- I also thought it'd be funny if they showed other kids pretending to be him when like strangers come down into the mm-hmm. station and they're like, "Wait, where's the magical kid that tells me?" And they're like, "Like all of his friends are like, I'll give you if you give me twenty bucks, I'll tell you." Yeah. Uh, also, the larger implication that he has all these other homeless kids in his yeah. cabal <laughs> like <laughs> are they homeless i don't know they're, <laughs> don't know they're just kids, kids came who, from. who are allowed to go down to the train station and hang out there all day it's yeah, 1981 who what need else an hourly wage <laughs> yeah the, who are able to, allowed to work without any like why doesn't the shoeshine guy report these kids yeah why isn't limbeck arresting all of them uh what are we thinking letterboxed richard uh i have a pretty low um uh, he says as though it were a surprise <laughs> so i have it at number 17 
uh, which puts it below the Devil and Max Devlin, but above All Night Long. All right, Jess? Um, I have it at a number so tiny I can't read it. What does that say? That's I a have good it- sign. <laughs> no, I have it at number 13 out of 25 for the year. Uh, it is below Ruckus and above Fort Apache the Bronx. Uh, I have it in ninth, uh, which is also above Fort Apache, uh, but I have it just below Maniac. So it's in my top 10 so far, um, just because I really liked the dialogue, even if the story's a little wrong. I think that's everything for On the Right Track. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. You can find the button at the top of our .com and join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future. Also search for Vintage Video Podcast on YouTube and subscribe to our new channel there. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Permanent Vacation, which IMDb describes like so. A young man wanders New York City searching for some meaning in life and encounters many idiosyncratic characters. We leave you now with the trailer from Permanent Vacation. My name is Aloysius Christopher Parker, and if I ever have a son, he'll be Charles Christopher Parker, just like Charlie Parker. But people I know just call me Allie, and this is my story, or part of it. It's how I got from there to here. Maybe I should say from here to here.